And we are in the season of Lent right now, already mentioned a few times this morning. It began this past week on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. I didn't receive ashes. Did anyone? I know. Cozy gave Aurelia her ashes, which I love. Katara did. Yeah. All right. Um, Lent, it's that 40 days of reflection and generally self-denial, and it's kind of a preparatory season for Easter. If you're a gardener, it corresponds with seed starting season, which just kind of feels right, doesn't it? This is the season in which you start seeds, you push it down into the dirt, the good dirt, the right dirt, and mysteriously, this little seed contains everything it needs to explode downward and upward, driving itself into the depths and into light. It always amazes me. You don't have to fertilize a seed. It contains everything it needs in itself right there. On Ash Wednesday, I read a powerful article that I want to share some pieces of here. I actually have a little anxiety because uh, Carissa was like, I don't like that article on Facebook. <laughs> but I'm like, you know what? I'm going to preach on it anyways. And in it, he critiques Memento Mori, this idea of remember you are mortal, which I know my man George Brown loves. And so I'm going to offend you this morning as well. This side of the room is getting offended. But I'm going to read some pieces of it. This is probably the closest thing you'll ever hear of a fire and brimstone sermon from me. And I don't agree with all of it, but I found it thought provoking. I've made some slight edits for clarity, as if y'all care or we're going to check, you know, what he wrote. <laughs> but Richard Beck, a psychologist and theologian whose work I really appreciate, he wrote, As you listen to churches like my church who are now embracing traditions like Ash Wednesday, your attention is drawn to how these congregations describe the purpose of these liturgical practices and seasons. A common reason you'll hear is that Ash Wednesday is for us to practice and contemplate our mortality. I expect you've seen or you will see this existential sentiment expressed online many times today with the words, dust you are and to dust you shall return. Ash Wednesday is a memento mori, a time to confront and face our eventual death. The point I want to make today, writes Beck, it's a point I've made before, he says, is that this existential framing of Ash Wednesday, it misses the penitential aspect of Lent. Here he's pitting, you know, this idea of just focused on my mortality. He says, that's all good and well, but you're missing the opportunity for penitence, for looking at your sin instead of just your mortality. He goes on, the words of Genesis 3, dust you are and to dust you shall return, are not props for existential philosophy. They communicate the curse that enters the world due to Adam's sin, a curse we still groan under. We aren't confronting death in Ash Wednesday so much as we are facing the consequences of our sin. And what's next is what really spoke to me. He said, an existential Ash Wednesday is a disenchanted Ash Wednesday. You've pulled God out of it because you don't need God uh, as you contemplate your mortality. You don't need to think about sin, judgment, penance, and atonement because such things assume metaphysical realities outside of your own experience. You don't have to believe a single thing in order to celebrate an existential Ash Wednesday. George, you're smiling back there. You don't have to believe in God or anything to celebrate Ash Wednesday, he says, which is why I think the existential move is in vogue right now. 
You can thrill to the aesthetics of the ritual and liturgy with minimal commitment to God. An existential Ash Wednesday is an emotional experience that you curate to feel moody, angsty, deep, and perfect for cultivating a sophisticated self-image and its associated social media persona. Hey, look at me. I enjoy contemplating death. I am so cool and deep. He's pretty harsh, isn't he? Do you really want to know who you are on Ash Wednesday, he writes? You're a sinner, and there's nothing hip, cool, or sophisticated about that. Surely nothing you'd want to hashtag about yourself on social media. The ashes today remind us that we are petty, no, petty, selfish, vain, and mean. Richard Beck, y'all. His words, not mine. Don't be mad. He doesn't coddle the reader here. I don't exactly share all of his metaphysics. We don't share, we don't share like all the same assumptions about what's happening above the physical level and in spiritual realms and all that. We don't share all that. Uh, I don't happen to think that we groan under a curse, the language he used, because some pair of ancestors picked the wrong fruit. Although Beck and I probably do agree on a deeper truth that we tend to seek forbidden fruit to our and others' detriments. We do that. Like... Why is it so hard for me to stop choosing myself over others all the time? Why is it so hard for me to do simple things like bundle my Amazon orders to one day <laughs> instead of needing it like, hey, can I get it this day? You know. Why does this problem-solving computer that we call a frontal cortex also craft elaborate and seemingly justified ways to hurt and cheat and scheme others, but it won't stop? It just keeps coming up with schemes. I was very struck by the distinction he drew between simply contemplating our mortality and asking how we fall short in our commitment to practice God's agape love toward one another. He uses the word sin. I'll put in the word practicing love or the lack of practicing love, which we habitually choose against. Now, hear me out. I freaking love the existential approach to life, the approach that says, I should make life choices in accordance with the fact that I very well might die today, leaving Heather a widow and my kids fatherless. That makes sense to me. I, I dig that kind of thing. I do. I like graveyards. I've had one of my most profound spiritual experiences in one. The short story is I was, found myself standing in a, in a graveyard one day. It wasn't a fugue state. Like I was there on, as one does. I was there doing something whatever. I was in a graveyard and I looked all around me and I noticed what was carved in stone. They were all relational terms. Mother, father, brother, sister, beloved friend, son, daughter, you know, and it just smacked me that what people had carved in stone six feet above them were relational terms. And maybe that's what matters in life. Nevertheless, I think Richard Beck is right, at least for me. At least for me. I think the remember you are mortal approach to life in general and Lent in particular is good, but it falls short. It doesn't ask me necessarily to contemplate and reflect on how I have or am in danger of wronging myself and others and God and creation. 
You can get there through memento mori. You can get there through that approach. It's, I would say, in a tangential zip code. It's close, but it isn't as direct and in your face as spending some time with thinking about how we tend to sabotage our relationships and sabotage what's good and break good things. We do it. Now, I've never really spent much time with Psalm 32, but it was on our our lectionary schedule of readings this week, and I was glad to see it as I read through it. It's David's reflection on the role that confession has played in his spiritual and mental health, and even his physical health. Let me just reflect for a few minutes on on a couple of the verses. In verse 1, he writes, Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I see here David is speaking about the gift of reconciliation after a transgression. My working theory for relationships is that relationships aren't real until we've had a good fight and we've made up. And not just swept it under the rug, but like we have worked through it afterward. Before then, maybe you're my friend, but maybe you're not my brother or my sister or my sibling. But if we've had a good like disagreement and a good fight, and then we've seen it through to something better, now we have a real relationship. And I see that's what David's talking about here. All of us will experience the rupture of relationships, but few of us will experience the repair and the reconciliation. We're just utterly terrible at it as a society. We don't know how to do it. We either sweep it under the rug or we just say, oh, sorry, and we move on. We don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of what happened and talk it through. And David here is describing the psychosomatic effects, right? The mind-body effects of his sin. He says, my body was literally wasting away from this sin that I committed. I was groaning all day long. Maybe he had stomach ailments. Maybe he had irritable bowel syndrome. I don't know. There was something going on in his body because of this sin he had committed. Now, he speaks very vaguely. I don't know what, maybe it was his sin of adultery with, you know, we say adultery, but exploitation toward Bathsheba. Maybe it was something else. Maybe it was the murder he kind of committed. Maybe it was the fact that his son rapes his daughter and he does nothing about it. I don't know what sin we're talking about. He hides in ambiguity here. He does. But he says it is destroying his body until he confesses to God. And likewise, it weighs on us, our minds, bodies, and spirits. And in verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to you, God, and then you forgave my guilt. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. And at their time of distress, he says, The rush of mighty waters will not reach them. What beautiful imagery. He basically says the experience of confession and reconciliation is like surviving a flood, as if being pulled out of a muddy, swirly, raging river. Now, confession is not something we're comfortable with, right? In fact, Jonathan came up to me before the sermon. He's like, you're preaching on confession? I'm really curious where you're going to go with this. 500 years ago, there was a big split in the Western church. Martin Luther and others wanted to put a stop to the abuses of the priestly class over the common people. 
One of the ways that Martin Luther came up with to do that was he told people, stop confessing your sins to these priests and start confessing directly to God and to one another. Take away their tea. This was the original tea party. Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) But it was a zero, she said yes, it was a zero to one kind of shift and it's pretty important to us. We hold this theological tenet, the priesthood of all believers. We believe like I can go directly to God, right? I don't need to go through a priest and we get that from this movement. Rather than having to go through a gatekeeping priest, you can know, experience, and commune with God. The sacred ground of all being. We give names like, he who sees me, or perhaps my favorite name we've used around here at times, she who combs the tangles from my hair. We can go directly to this divine presence. Confession became a private matter, which is good, but then it largely died out as a practice. We just don't practice confession with each other very much anymore. And this wasn't what the reformers wanted. This wasn't the fix they were trying to bring about. In 1522, in a sermon, Martin Luther wrote, I wish the Pope would keep his hands off of confession and not make it compulsory, which he doesn't even have the power to do. He can't force me to confess. I wish he would just stay out of my confession business, Martin Luther said. Nevertheless, I will allow no one to take private confession away from me. Private confession, confessing to each other, confessing to someone I trust, that's very important to me, Martin Luther said. I'm not going to read you his whole quote because you you don't want to listen to all of Martin Luther. Let me just say this. Even after completely dismantling so many exploitative church structures, Luther didn't want his people to lose the gift of confession. He believed in it. He believed it could be healing. Let me conclude here with a few practical considerations on confession and then a personal story. Um, confession is not something we're comfortable with or we're good at, so, you know, maybe a starting place. A starting place would simply be reflection, maybe during the next 40 days or so. (laughs) Just reflect and be open to the possibility that maybe you could benefit from confessing what's been going on in you or that you've been doing to someone else. Yes, you. It's going to take some real courage and honesty because we have really evolved, developed, sophisticated psychological defenses that we use to deny that we've done anything wrong. We're really good at avoiding that, seeing what we've done, you know. So spend some time just reflecting. Maybe ask somebody close to you, hey, is there anything maybe I need to confess? And in fact, that's my second encouragement. Make it part of your routine. At almost every dinner time at my house, we go around the table. I insist that we sit together. Heather insists we sit together. And we will often talk about our happy things from the day. We all take a turn. On a good night, we get through three happy things. Most nights, we're doing good to get through one happy thing. And sometimes we'll begin with the question, is there anything we need to say sorry for today? Boom, right there. There's an opportunity for confession. We're sitting around the table. Ellis or Haddon will be like, oh, Dad, you got something. (laughs) You're going to tell everybody that one thing, you know. So make it a part of your routine, whatever that looks like. I don't know, before you go to bed. Hey, is there anything I need to say sorry for today? Start, you know, build it in into your routine. Third, be as specific as you can, as long as it's helpful. 
Don't get into graphic, nasty details. Nobody wants to hear that. But be specific in your confession. Life is lived in specificity. Specificity. Not generalities. And we often use the latter to hide. We love to hide in generalities. Be specific. Confession is about coming out of hiding. Don't live in a cave. Live in a home with big, bright, clear windows. Don't be too graphic, though. Use some discernment. And last, find someone you can trust with your confession. It may not be the person you wronged at first. Find someone. Just start somewhere. A therapist, a friend, a pastor, a deacon, someone, someone in here, someone not in here. Find someone you can confess to. And last, let me share a personal story, which I know I said you're not supposed to speak with ambiguity, but I'm going to because I'm sharing my own personal experience of confession and the internet sucks and I don't want this forever like out there. (laughs) So allow me to speak with some ambiguity and leave out some details. But several years ago, I was having a very significant mental health challenge, very significant, involving intrusive, compulsive, and really unhelpful thoughts. I mean, we're talking for about two or three months, really bad stuff. And as hard as I tried, I couldn't get free of them. I mean, this is why they're intrusive, (laughs) compulsive, like it's not, I'm not choosing them. They're in there, or there's part of me that isn't choosing them. They were like a foreign object lodged squarely in my mind. In King David's words, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. That was not my experience. My feet were swept out from under me. me. The slippery banks gave way, and I was caught in a psychological and spiritual flood, tumbling through muddy water, pinned against rocks and debris underwater, occasionally getting a breath of air, and then pushed back under. And I didn't know where to go. I had had a therapist for years that I probably could have reached out to and she would have been a safe person, but it just didn't feel like what I needed at that time. And I didn't know what I needed and I was lost and confused. And I finally got up the courage to call an old pastor from my college days. We hadn't spoken in a decade and a half. He was the one that married Heather and me. And although I felt embarrassed and confused and I didn't know what to do or say, I just started confessing and talking through with him all the details. I hadn't been that honest in years. He was an incredible listener. He accepted me in my struggles. And as I was, he helped reality check a lot of my thoughts. Like, hey, that's crazy thinking. Or, hey, that's a fantasy that has nothing to do with reality, Matthew. You realize that, right? He encouraged me to talk to other important people in my life about this, which I eventually did. It took me another year or more, but I did. And let me tell you, it was unbelievably freeing. That one 20-minute phone call freed me. It was like, like an exorcism, you know? I know we have different ideas of demons and exorcism and all that in here. If, if church in a place we could talk about exorcism, I don't know where it is actually. But it felt like I felt freed. 
I felt let go of. It was healing. And I stand here before you this morning as someone whose life has not completely disintegrated, primarily because of that moment of confession and connection with a safe, trusted person. It's absolutely one of the high, low points in my life. I I don't know how else to describe that. And so I began the sermon with some fire and brimstone from a Church of Christ guy that I really like. And let me just conclude on a pastoral note with a pastoral plea. We need to be confessees and confessors to one another, being there for each other. And you may find yourself in the coming days, weeks, months, years, in a flood of thoughts or feelings, on the precipice or even on the other side of some action that threatens everything you love and hold dear. You may find yourself with your heart, soul, mind, and body groaning like David describes. Just start with an honest confession to God about it. Start there. And then call me. Call me. Call Aurelia. Call Jana. Call Naomi. Call somebody in this room, whether they have a title or not. Reach out and uh, confess and talk it through and drink in that ancient spiritual medicine of confession to one another. It's healing. You may just find, like me, healing community, freedom from ego and fear that you are untouchable or broken. It's healing. This is my hope and my prayer for you and my encouragement. And may you all have an amazing Lenten journey, my dear friends. Thank you.